You are listening to a Stat Media Group production. This is Cargo Masterminds presented by Cargo One. This is an exclusive one-to-one weekly interview series with leaders from the world's leading air cargo and logistics companies. It is Monday and it is time to catch up with the new Cargo Mastermind with your host, Reggie John. Today's episode is special because my guest today is very, very special. He is an authority on transportation and logistics, a very well-respected teacher, writer, founder, and influencer on all things transportation, logistics, and supply chain around the world. It is an honor to have Professor Yossi Shafi, Director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics, and Director and Founder of the Master of Engineering in Logistics program, join us in this special episode of Cargo Masterminds, presented by Cargo One. Before I give the introduction, I must tell you something. On January 26th this year, FedEx founder Fred Smith visited MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics as part of its 50th anniversary celebrations. Interestingly, FedEx 2 completes 15 years in 2023. Professor Sheffi held an hour-long one-on-one conversation with Smith, a legend of our time, and someone who, according to Professor Sheffi, started an industry more than a company. As he took the stage to introduce the guest, Professor Sheffi introduced himself and also added a line, If you don't know who I am, you don't belong here. Professor Sheffi is well-known, but I must say, it is fascinating to read through his bio. Besides being the director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics and director and founder of the Master of Engineering in Logistics program, he is a faculty member of the MIT Civil and Environmental Engineering Department as well as the Institute for Data, Systems and Society. He is a global expert in systems optimization, risk analysis and supply chain management. Under his leadership, MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics has launched many educational, research, and industry government outreach programs. Professor Sheffi launched an international expansion of MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics, establishing logistics and supply chain management academic institutions around the world in Spain, Colombia, Malaysia, Luxembourg, and China. Besides teaching and writing, Professor Sheffi has consulted with numerous governments and leading manufacturing, retail, and transportation enterprises all over the world. He has also founded five successful companies. He is a prolific writer and an influencer. His writings influence decision makers in organizations and supply chain professionals around the world. Since the pandemic, Professor Sheffi has written four books. Professor Sheffi's latest book was published earlier this year and it is called The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chains, AI and the Future of Work. One of the many reasons for us to have him in this episode, Professor Sheffi joins us from Boston in the US. Professor Sheffi, uh, it's such an honor to have you join us uh, in this episode of Cargo Masterminds. Uh, 
very, very warm welcome to you, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. Professor Shabir, uh, let's start with your latest book. Uh, it's called The Magic Conveyor Belt, uh, Supply Chains, AI, and the Future of Work. What led you to writing this book? Okay, so uh, the book is several parts, but uh, the original intent was that after the pandemic, people used to ask my wife, we know that your husband is working in supply chain. What is supply chain? Ask us to explain to us. And my wife has many, many friends. So rather than a one-on-one -on -one meeting with all her friends, I said, I'll write a book and explain to them what supply chain is. Now, that's what the beginning. But then I started talking about the, as progress with writing the book, started talking about the use of technology in supply chain. And that's where, um, you know, towards the end of the writing, generative AI came up. So uh, people started being very anxious about jobs. So I started looking at the various industrial revolutions it started to the whole second part of the book is about technology and the use of AI and to what extent AI can uh, replace jobs or augment jobs in the future. Professor, uh, give us a sense of the often hidden intrinsic structure of the supply chains and how such structures support mammoth networks uh, involved in global supply chain in procuring raw materials to distributing produced goods to consumers around the world. Uh, you call it the global dance in the first part of the book. Uh, how does this choreography happen and make it happen again and again? So first let me um, say that another reason for writing the book was that explain to people how complex and vast supply chains are, global supply chain are. So people, uh, a lot of the media after the pandemic started talking about the failure of supply chain. And I was saying, no, 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 it's not a failure. It was the finest hour because there were unexpected, really tough conditions, both supply and demand for the first, first real disruption that disrupted both supply and demand. And supply chains still work for the most part. So I tried to get people to start thinking, once they understand what it takes to bring an item to the retail shelf or to the Amazon warehouse, that they will not be disappointed when the item that they want is not there, but they'll be awed and surprised when it's there. Once they understand what it takes, as you say, from the mineral dug somewhere in China to a finished product on the uh, on the shelf. In terms of the the magic, as I said in in the book, when you think about how many organizations, people, legal regimes, custom regimes, uh, crossing borders, uh, transportation, what's involved in all of this? It's amazing that it's happened. That's why I call it the magic conveyor belt, conveyor belt, move the stuff, you know, <laughs> across the globe. The idea is that um, it happens without anybody controlling. That's the magic. It's the, you know, the invisible hand of, of Adam Smith. Basically, a supply chain is a set of multiple buy and seller, buy and seller, buy and seller, buy and seller, you know, sets. Everybody acts in their own best interest, yet the system works. So in some sense, that's the magic and the supply chain, the even existence of supply chain, to me is the poster child for what's the invisible hand. That somehow everybody, you know, worries about their own benefit and yet the system works for the benefit of consumers worldwide. So that's the magic. Professor, in the part two of your book, uh, you talk about the growing and intense uh, layers of complexity and challenges 
added over the years as consumer demand kept changing. How much did internet and e-commerce accelerate this change in consumer demand and intensify the complexity of uh, challenges? It's not, I don't think it changed fundamentally consumer demand. People don't buy two mattresses instead of one. People, they, they need only one. You need only so many shirts and so many. You don't buy more because it's there. And there have been very cheap providers from uh, Zara, many, many others that provide cheap clothing that people could buy and, and throw away, which people in the West do. So I don't think it influenced basically demand. What it influenced is how the movement in supply chains are taking place. It influenced the ease with which people can buy. And that says maybe people can, can buy a little more, even though in the United States, it is just as easy to return. You buy from Amazon, you can return it for free. It, it, it's not a problem. So people may try you know, five shirts and then return four of them. So it's not, the, I don't think the demand itself is, is much higher, but of course, the convenience of buying. When I said things are becoming more complex, it's basically in the last few years, you know, let's go step back. The basic idea of supply chain, the basic goals are low cost and high level of service. Because high level of service brings also revenue. So it relates to profit, high revenue, low cost, more profit. So this always used to be the basic objectives of supply chain management. In the last few years, we have several others which complicate the work of uh, supply chain managers and executives. We're talking about sustainability. Sustainability is totally a supply chain issue. People have to understand that when you measure emission of a company, it's meaningless because you can outsource the high emission operations outside the country, somewhere in China, somewhere in, you know, wherever. And uh, globally, which is in terms of um, global emission, you change nothing. In fact, you made it worse because let's say manufacturing in Europe or the United States is much more responsible than manufacturing in other parts of the world, be Russia or China or whatever. So actually by outsourcing, you make it worse. So you have to measure the entire supply chain. What's the emission along the supply chain in order to say if somebody doing the right job or not. And then there are efforts in, in this direction, but people have to understand that sustainability is basically a supply chain issue. It's not a corporate issue. Now, other issues came, especially during, uh, after the pandemic, resilience, being able to, um, to withstand disruptions. Now, resilience is a concept taken from material science. It's the ability of a, a metal to return it checked after a deformation. But uh, now we're talking about, in business, we're talking about the ability of a company to get back to the same level of service, level of manufacturing, whatever the key performance indicator is after some kind of, of disruption. And we had many disruptions in the past. I've been writing books about resilience uh, since the early 2000s, but it never got, so corporate managers were always aware of it and were always, you know, taking steps in this direction, especially after long disruptions. Like I started the first book on resilience after 9-11. The book came out after Katerina in 2005. 10 years later, I wrote another book because things have changed. There was the, you know, the Japan, you know, a disaster, and there were many other disruptions, and corporate had to stand with them, and they became better and better. Nothing like the pandemic, of course. Uh, after the pandemic, the media started talking about resilience, which they never did before. 
You mean to start talking about supply chain in general? There are some publications, the New York Times admitted that until the pandemic, they never had any journalists covering the bit of supply chain. Now, the Wall Street Journal has several of them. They always cover the FT has them, but the New York Times, the premier New York, uh, world newspaper, and, and nobody covering uh, supply chain. But this, this changed. So, but it got to the consciousness of consumers. It, it came, it moved from the board table to the kitchen table. Now understand that supply chain is there, it's complex, and it's not automatic. In some sense, supply chain managers before the pandemic were victims of their own success. Everything worked so well. There was such plenty of everything. It was all provided at low cost that people thought that this is a God-given law, that that's how the world operates. They realized that it's because of the efforts of millions of people that it worked very well. And when something big disruption happened, it disrupted the processes. And people had to do to go to extraordinary efforts in order to keep things going. Uh, Professor, according to you, does the world's current uh, transportation and logistic infrastructure network capable of meeting the consumer demand expectation of having the goods ordered today and getting them delivered yesterday. That's the kind of things that goes on today. Uh, do you think that the current infrastructure of transportation logistics is ready for such a consumer demand, such a consumer pattern? Uh, that's very region-specific question because in China and in the U.S., it happens. I order something from Amazon. I'll get it usually within a few hours. You sit in Boston after dinner. Your wife said you need the new detergent. You order it and you get a message that between 4 and 8 in the morning it will be on your doorstep. It's actually amazing. It happens. What it takes in many cases is having larger inventories than we used to have uh, because of uh, disruptions in the ports. Some disruptions, they're getting better than you know, a year ago. But I think by and large, the infrastructure in the, in the Western world, particularly, and also in China, can support it easily. It's not quite the same thing if you live in uh, Sao Paulo, in, in Brazil. I don't know if you were there, but the traffic in Sao Paulo, well, you've been to Delhi, so it's not. <laughs> you know, some city, the traffic is such that you simply cannot do, cannot do it. I you live cannot, in Mumbai. You live in Mumbai, okay. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> same thing. So it's... Uh, Traffic is enormous. The infrastructure is not quite to, uh, let's say, to Chinese standard. The Chinese is better infrastructure than the United States, uh, much better in terms of roads, railroad, uh, stuff like this, airports. So um, China is probably leading the world in terms of infrastructure. And indeed, you get e-commerce in China, in Beijing, in Shanghai, within a few hours. Uh, you order something, you get it pretty quickly. Now, my guess, it's not clear. The issues are not so much infrastructure. The issues are, for example, sustainability. Does it make sense to get something in two or three hours? I said, but I do it because it's just, you just click a button and it's there almost mindlessly. Yeah, the Amazon and, you know, condition all of us to do it. But who needs it? I, Amazon, for example, has a Amazon Day once a week when they deliver all your packages. It makes sense to use it. Sometimes I remember to use it most time. I, I don't know you can get the delivery on Amazon. Then we get all your weekly delivery on the same day, which obviously is a good thing. But uh, 
very few people do it. Uh, it's just so easy to get it, you know, within, within a few hours. So I, I think at one point there may be restrictions on the speed of delivery. And as much as my wife would hate it, I think it will happen uh, because of sustainability. It, it makes no sense to continue at that day, at that rate. So I don't think it's so much infrastructure as other, you know, pressures. Let me give you another one, possibly. What will happen to e-commerce if the next big disruption is not going to be pandemic, but it's going to be a huge cyber attack by a state actor, which means suddenly credit cards are not going to work, e-commerce is not going to work, you know, the internet is not going to work. Really? Then everything had to be the opposite of what we did during the pandemic. You have to go to stores, you have to go physically to places, you know, everything will be the opposite. Are we ready for this? Not sure. Yeah, that's actually very true, Professor. In fact, I was actually moderating a session at the Transport Logistic event in Munich about two months back. And one of my speakers was a lady from WestJet uh, Cargo Airline in, in Canada. And uh, she said, uh, for Canadians, uh, they are not looking for speed. What they're looking for is uh, reliability of uh, package deliveries. Uh, it is quite unsustainable for anyone to order two donuts uh, for Indian rupees. It's about 120 rupees. That's about one point five dollars. No less. And yeah, and having that delivery guy coming for about um, a kilometer and a half to deliver is that really sustainable? I think a lot of demand is on on the consumer. As consumers, do we consolidate orders, or how do we contribute to sustainable goals of uh, of the greater interest of the of the society? I think that's an important point. Of course, and the consumer have to do it, but for the most part, they don't. So it's so it's uh, whether we will be will be some government regulation in the future. I I'm not sure. It will be very difficult, especially in the United States, very difficult to put restrictions on what people will see as the quality of service. Professor, let's come to the the buzzword of uh, the modern era. How do artificial intelligence, large language models, robotics, and uh, automation influence the future of consumer demand and how goods are ordered, tracked, and delivered. Uh, what is in it for uh, logistic companies? Two issues there. First of all, what's happening in the supply chain, in logistic transportation supply chain in general, and what happened to people who are anxious about job. So let's talk about, about the first one. So first, uh, there are certain areas of supply chain that are being automated uh, with a lot of AI, so robotic, AI-infused robotic is taking place very quickly. For example, warehouses are becoming more and more automated. It's very hard to think about non-automated warehouses anymore, whether it's, uh, you know, conveyors, but even the conveyor belts all have, you know, automatic reader that send, send the packages to the right places. And, uh, and uh, robots who move around and move aisles around and, and then reach full aisles to the, to the pickers. So this happens at incredible speed. People are automating, in part now because of the lack of workers, because of the deficit of, of, of workers after the pandemic. There's a, the United States is now at 3.5 unemployment rate, which is historically minuscule. Uh, we used to think that healthy unemployment is 6 to 7%. We're at half of this. And still there are more job openings than people looking for jobs. So it will really continue for uh, you know, for a while. We are 
on the verge of having autonomous vehicles, autonomous trucks. So again, this is something that will automate many activities in the supply chain. There are lots of other, some of them we're already there, we see it. Whether you call your favorite uh, customer service representative, nine times out of 10, you're talking to a chatbot. It used to be before large language model, before uh, AI got to where it is, that you had to do press one if you want this, press two if you want this, press three if you want that. That doesn't exist anymore. You just speak and the chatbot understand what you're saying and stuff, direct example. And if it gets, you know, stuck, there's a human comes on, uh, comes on the line. So we have this already, you know, AI is in fact embedded in many existing applications already, but it will get more so. Now we move to the other thing, the anxiety about jobs, which I also wrote about. Clearly, there will be many professions. Generative AI can do part of the job, many of the tasks of humans. It's already happening in legal research. You know, you can very quickly write briefs that summarize a lot of uh, previous cases. Now, at this point, ChatGPT and the like are not perfect, and they sometimes hallucinate and invent stuff. So they have to be very carefully examined, but they're becoming better. and becoming better all the time. But on the bigger question of jobs being lost, there was it Morgan Stanley, I think, just wrote something that said they expect 300 million jobs to disappear in the next few years around the world. I am not sure. I'm not sure because of several reasons. First of all, if you look at every technological revolution, every industrial revolution, starting from the mechanization of the loom to steam to electricity to internet, created more jobs than being lost. Some jobs are lost, for sure. We don't have any more elevator operators. We don't have any, any more so-called computers. Computer used to be a job description of people who sat and did you know, financial statement by hand. We don't have any more telephone exchange operator or It's all automated. So some jobs are being lost, but invariably, many more jobs were created than you lost throughout the years. So I don't think it will be different this time. It's just that the, the anxiety comes from the fact that we know that people are going to lose their jobs. It's a, when you go to the supermarket and you see these automatic checkout counters, so you say, okay, some of the clerks are going to lose their jobs. So you know that people are going to lose their job. You can imagine them. What you cannot imagine are the new jobs that will be created, the new industries that will be created because they're not there. But there are even bigger examples. For example, when Ford came up with the, basically the assembly line. Before the assembly line, people used to, in groups, Artisans basically used to put cars together. Then they came up with the uh, assembly line. And many, many people make many more cars. The uh, employment in Ford moved from a few thousand to 150,000 at the height of the Model T. But this was not the, so multiple several times, but this was not the big effect. The big effect was that cars became a lot less expensive. A lot more people were able to afford cars. So highways were built, hotels, motels, restaurants, the whole hospitality industry exploded. Now, when Henry Ford put up the uh, assembly line, he did not foresee that this would be a, a, a huge effect on the totally different industry. But there were millions of jobs that were created. Nobody could foresee this. So 
Yeah, things that are happening and uh, hard to imagine. Uh, many of the jobs that exist today in the internet era, I mean, who would have dreamt 50 years ago about jobs like optimizing advertising on Google or, or all kind of, all the, the statistics jobs, the data science jobs, and that. It didn't exist before. But also, all kind of machine operators. In many manufacturing jobs, you see people with iPad like, starting in Germany, in Mercedes plant, people with iPad like. Uh, devices operating robots. In many cases, the robots are doing jobs that then people don't want to do, like welding and painting, which are actually dangerous jobs. The robots are doing that. Everybody is happy. People are doing jobs that they want. In other cases, people are monitoring the uh, the algorithm in the AI. Chatbot is an example of the simple jobs are done by the machine, but they sometimes you need the context, you need to understand the person, the problem is different than what they are describing. So a human comes on the job that, that can relate to the customer. So there'll be a lot of monitoring jobs for sure, but people need to understand the algorithm, understand when the algorithm doesn't work. People will understand, not even this. Sometimes the context changes. We're going into a recession suddenly. So the solutions that we had before, we don't want these solutions anymore. We have to stop them and intervene and do something else. People understand context beyond the uh, narrow area that the robot or the uh, AI uh, is working in. So we'll have a lot more of this type of jobs, but there are some new industries. Professor, uh, digital transformation is a, is a key topic of every industry and every organization, big or small. While there will be technology and digital tools, uh, how important will be the transformation of human mindset for society to take full advantage of uh, such a transformation? Yeah, very good question. There are several issues there. First of all, the change on uh, for jobs is not going to be fast. It takes time. It takes time because there will be uh, unions will fight, will fight against it. The government regulations, they now we try to slow down the development of these models. But there's also the issue of acceptability, social acceptability. Give you an example. Today's 797, 787, 797 Boeing aircraft or A350 from Airbus can go basically gate to gate without a pilot. My guess is that none of your listener would go to, into an aluminum box that fly 35,000 feet in the air over the ocean with nobody in the cockpit. We're not, we're not accepting. It may change. You know, in 1945, there was a strike in New York of elevator operators and building was shut down. People were afraid to go into an elevator without an operator. Even though they knew exactly what the operator did, it was not complicated, just up and down. But this was the issue of acceptability. How accepted will be autonomous dry trucks going 100 kilometers an hour on the highway right behind you when there's no driver there? Would you feel safe about it or not? Would you fight it? It's not clear, but these are there's a lot of issues that mean that it's not going to happen very quickly. Now, coming back to your question, the main challenge is integrating people and machines. How do we take what the machine can do best and what people can do best and integrate it in one workflow? To me, this is the challenge of the next five, 10 years because uh, there are many modes of doing this. People will have to change. The machines will also have to change. They have to become much easier to use, much easier to interact with, 
much easier to send a, a message that something is wrong or something is working. So the, the constant dashboard that's operating and easy to use and easy to intervene in. People will have to be trained on how to use it, when to intervene, when let the machine do what it does. It will take time. It will take time and companies will be able to do it best to combine the speed, the reliability, the consistency of machine with the human quality of being able to understand context, with empathy, with detecting biases in the, uh, in the machine decisions and avoiding it and overriding it. This will be some of the most important challenges of the future because I don't see the challenge of just, yeah, there'll be a lot of aids and, you know, yes, now Google Maps is putting uh, AI into its prediction of, of congestion, right? Okay, this happens in the background. It doesn't impact anybody, you know, the, the prediction of when you go from A to B and they say uh, 30 minutes from now when you'll be close to B, they're likely to be that congestion, maybe. So all of this is happening types of, in the background, chatbots are becoming more understanding the spoken word rather than press one or press two. This doesn't impact jobs really. It's just better. Things are done better. They're, you know, even taking pictures and being able to change the picture after it's taken that Google does on its uh, on its telephones are all just making life better. Honestly, the fear of replacing job, as I said, that's the fear of many people, and uh, it's the responsibility of both government but mostly people themselves, because big companies are investing in their employees and are upgrading capabilities. The problem is that uh, what happens to most small shops and independent people? You know, we have many more gig workers now in the, the economy all over the world. They have to take responsibility for themselves. They have to upgrade capability, and it's not easy to do because they don't have the bandwidth and time to learn other things, to go online, to learn stuff. Or, but uh, that's the... Uh, one of the challenges, it may be a challenge for governments. Government will have to be some funds to do it. Because the fear is, if we don't do it, inequality will keep growing. And that's a social problem, a real social problem. So we need to think about it and find solutions right now. Professor, as uh, companies build a physical infrastructure, they're equally investing in digital infrastructure to almost mimic the physical, creating a digital twin. Uh, uh, some call it the world of digital. Uh, how critical is this for transport and logistic companies to create a balance between physical and digital infrastructure creation to enable agility and resiliency in global supply chains? We're talking about digital twins, basically. A digital, a digital twin of an asset is a representation of this asset in the computer, in a, a digital form. But we always had this. We always had simulations of network. We always had But what is different here is that we keep, uh, we keep the model and there's data flow continuously from the physical asset to the model. So the model is updated all the time. What people don't realize is they use a digital twin all the time and not even think about it because nobody calls it digital twins. But think about what happens when you drive your car and use Google Maps. The map, so you have the the physical infrastructure, the roads that you drive on, you have the digital representation in your car or in your phone, and you have constant stream of information from the physical to the digital. 
because the digital map is being updated. There's congestion here, there's road closure there, what happened? So this is exactly an example of a digital twin. The more people use digital twins, the better the better it would be. There in some a lot of opportunities. So for example, General Electric is using digital twin of its uh, jet engines. And every engine that they make, not it's not one digital twin for all the engines. Every engine has a digital twin. So and it gets continuous data from the aircraft that it flies on, which flies because there are sensors in the uh, uh, in the engine that's a continuous data to the digital twin, so they can always see what's going on. You can always see if um, a part, some blade is need replacement or something, or maybe time to replace it, but the blade is still fine. You don't need to replace it. So it allows you to do, for example, maintenance more on an as-needed basis rather than on a you know, structured frequency in general. You know, set ahead of time, which may be not sensitive to the conditions that the engine actually operates under. So all of this, I think, have um, created more effective and efficient operation. Professor, uh, you interviewed uh, Fred Smith, uh, FedEx founder at the MIT campus earlier this year. And he spoke about innovation and he said, uh, if you are in business and you don't innovate, you are in the process of commoditization or extinction. Uh, Phoenix has been reimagining the supply chain since its first day of operation. Uh, Smith had once said, uh, information about the package is as important as the package itself. Uh, looking at the global logistic technology startup ecosystem and the increasing frequency of global supply chain shocks, geopolitics, climate change, natural disasters, and disruptions, do you think technology has some answers to mitigate some of these shocks? Definitely yes. Some, not all. Because technology cannot impact an earthquake. Technology cannot, cannot impact a flood. However, what technology does is there are companies that do it today. For example, there are companies that do immediate risk assessment. So when you have a supplier in some part of the world and there's a flood there or fire or earthquake or uh, I don't know, demonstrations and the plant is closed and you don't get a part out of this. There are services that give you this this idea that there's, you know, Northern Italy is closed because of COVID or something. There are companies that map the, the supply chain of, um, you know, they're provided that make the supply chain of, of companies and uh, the location of all their suppliers, all their own plants and all the suppliers. So within seconds, if something happened in that region, they know that some supplier is, is being hurt and being, you know, cannot supply anything. But they go a step further. They also map the entire bill of material. So they know which part is being made by this supplier, which component, which or which uh, product these parts go into, and which customer is using this product. So within Seconds, they can tell what is so-called value at risk. How many more product we cannot supply to which customers? We can also know that immediately what parts are necessary. Maybe we can start immediately looking for other parts. This is done with very sophisticated technology, being able to scan immediately the globe, basically, being able to immediately assess what is being made, what is the bill of material, what's in the product, who are the customers, alert the customers, find other suppliers. All of these are happening because it's, we can find out immediately what's going on. 
So this is an example of technology in action. Uh, now these companies do a lot more AI and doing even more sophisticated stuff, but that's, that's the basic offering. Many companies are, are investing in visibility, in being able to find what is going on in the supply chain as deep as possible. Again, the idea is if there's something that's not going to make it in time, you better not find it when the truck does not come to the plant, but find it well ahead of time. That something was delayed at the port, something with the container was delayed well before it comes. So you can take some action. So these are examples of uh, technology helping supply chains recover more quickly, try to do what they can, find a uh, find solution before the customer is being affected. Professor, I want to end the conversation with this question on the reflection on the current state of affairs in the world around. Uh, there's a growing level of polarization around the world. Uh, countries and companies want de-risk manufacturing and global supply chains from outsourcing production to one country or a region. The, the trend is drifting to the nearshoring or what we call friendshoring. Uh, in, a, in such a developing scenario, what is your advice to leaders on building resilient supply chain? So first of all, I think that uh, when everything's said and done, a lot more is said than done. People are talking about reshoring, talking about friendshoring. There's a lot less that's actually happening. Some are happening on the margin, very little actually. So let's talk in particular about China, because this is still the manufacturing hub of the world. The media is talking about people leaving China. It's really not happening, not nearly the scale that people are talking about it, for several reasons. First of all, it took companies decades and billions of dollars to build supply chains in China. Supply and their supply and their supply to train them, to give them the technology, develop the technology, to be able to serve sophisticated manufacturing. This is very hard to replace. It takes decades to replace all this. Second, China is also the source of a lot of raw material. For example, take aluminum. So not, you can find aluminum, maybe do aluminum mining elsewhere. There are some United States has aluminum, but we don't want to mine it because of environmental concerns. So we let the Chinese mining it a lot less responsibly. But China also has most of the smelters around the world. So it's not only the mining, it's the you know manufacturing what comes out of the mine, working it out. Uh, so it's not easy. Uh, and by the way, most companies are not in China anymore because of low labor cost. This advantage is gone, especially in the along the Pacific coast from uh, Beijing to Shanghai to Shenzhen. Prices of labor are pretty high. In fact, many Chinese companies are moving out of China. Chinese garment manufacturing, basically the, the last stages, the cutting and sewing is now in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. Even Chinese companies are in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. Textile is still done in China because it's very sophisticated. Manufacturing requires a lot of capital, capex and capital investment. Finally, people cannot leave China because China is still a huge and growing market. So it's very hard to, and, and by the way, becoming more and more nationalistic, which means you want to sell in China, you have to make in China. So companies are, many companies are staying in China. Companies are trying to bifurcate doing part in China, part somewhere else, but this is on the margin. To do it, there's another issue, which I mentioned before, the issue of um, environmental uh, sustainability, because take rare earth minerals. China is the leading provider of the world, 
The United States has as much, if not more, rare earth minerals in the ground than China. But we don't mind it because we are worried about environmental impact. So, which means that we increase our dependence on, on China. So in some sense, people have to decide which poison is better. Professor Shefi, before I let you go, allow me to excuse one more question. Um, what is the next book that you're writing? It's a good question because I'm working. There's been a book that I was looking for a long time, a book about the, the history of supply chain, which slowly but surely it's always in the background because I always there's more urgent books that I want to write. I'm looking at the possibility of generative AIs developing to start thinking about really how people and generative AI can work together, especially middle management type of jobs. Yeah. And I'm also, through this uh, second and third, I'm working with some companies on a concept that may or may not work of companies pulling in their forecasts, companies in the chip business pulling in their forecasts, creating what is the demand of the industry. So try to convince companies to share data. And if it works, it will be one of my next books. But I don't know if it would work. So because we have to get over the lawyers, uh, get over several areas. One of them is the Justice Department, the Competition Commission, aversion to sharing data. So we got over this because we don't share pricing data. We just share forecast. But companies, even the legal profession within these companies is very leery about sharing data. So... We'll see. If it works, it will be great. And then it will be also my next book. Do you use a lot of uh, AI tools in your, uh, in your academic research and things like that? Not really. Not really. I, look, sometimes I use ChatGPT, but it's, it's not for real research. It's just for, you know, sometimes they, you know, I get journalists asking me all the time to comment on anything that happens in the supply chain. And then in many cases, the first thing I do is fire ChatGPT, tell me what's going what's happening and I look at it, some of it makes sense, some of it doesn't make sense. But at least it points me to the right direction to be able to uh, to look further and do my own research. So I use it sometimes for uh, initial kind of write-up, initial ideas, uh, but very little of this. Professor Shafi, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it was such a pleasure talking to you and uh, appreciate joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good one. That was Professor Yofi Shafi. Director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics and Director and Founder of the Master of Engineering in Logistics program. That's it from us at Stat Media Group. We bring cargo masterminds every Monday. Thanks for tuning in and come back next Monday for a fresh episode.